You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iwoo. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. She is the founder and president of Culture of Life Africa, an initiative dedicated to the promotion and defense of African values in the sanctity of life, the beauty of marriage, and blessings of motherhood, and the dignity of family life. I first came across our guest today, Obianuju Ikyoka, um, and uh, on Twitter, and immediately kind of found myself uh, fascinated with some of what she had written addressing issues of pro-life and neocolonialism, and from a scientific perspective, and also from a perspective of her heritage. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Uju. Thank you so much, Aaron, for having me on. I'm really excited to speak with you today. Now, let me just help orient our listeners before we do jump in. If you want to find out more about Uju, you can check out the website cultureoflifeafrica.com, cultureoflifeafrica.com. And there's resources there. There's introductions there. There's all kinds of things there. Uh, but I'd, I'd also invite you, can you share, uh, just by way of introduction, can you share just a little bit of, of your story and who you are with our listeners today? Sure. Yes, so I am, as you can hear from the name, <laughs> uh, African uh, by, by origin. I was born and raised in Nigeria, from the southeastern part of Nigeria. I'm from a fairly large family, a family of six children. Uh, but I came to the United Kingdom about 12 years ago, and I came to study. I came to pursue uh, advanced studies. I came to do my master's in London. Uh, and then afterwards, I started working as a biomedical scientist in the UK. So the entire time, I was always pro-life because I was raised within a, a regular African family. And I would say by default, a majority of the African people are pro-life. Um, uh, even by tradition as well. So I had, uh, you know, all these pro-life convictions and, you know, uh, the, just how we understood the family, how we, we understand marriage and how we respect our parents and all these traditions that uh, came from my background. I had all of it, but I had no thoughts whatsoever of going into any kind of activism. I was rather uh, very much uh, concentrating on my career and trying to, you know, to, to do well here in the United Kingdom. But then uh, back in 2012, I came upon this large project, extensive project that uh, the wife of Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, was, was at the time trying to do. Uh, it was a, a massive project to bring in contraceptives into uh, the poorest nations in the world. But of course, most of those would be African countries. So she was uh, doing a big summit and, and all of that. And I, I, I felt quite disturbed by this because I felt that it wasn't just about bringing contraception, that she was indeed starting a new movement, a new culture uh, that, that would veer Africa away from, you know, our own cultural views and values, from the way we see human sexuality, from the way we see motherhood, from the way, you know, women uh, see their marriages and understand their relationship within their marriage. Um, so I decided to write a letter to her, an, an open letter that, that then became known as the open letter to Melinda Gates that can be seen online, uh, Many because many people picked it up, it went viral, and shortly after that I then got much more involved uh, within the pro-life movement, and the part of the pro-life movement is really not what people are usually accustomed to, it's more 
trying to tell the world uh, a lot of where the Af- a lot of things about where the Africans are coming from and how we see things, our views, our visions, and just articulating things that we already know uh, and things that I've already known just just from you know my background and those around me, my family, my friends, uh, what I have known all my life, really. Uh, so that's the the, 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 the slant that, that my work has then taken uh, by need. And then I've uh, been speaking about it. I've been writing about it. I've written one book about it uh, most recently. It's called Target Africa. And then every year as well, for the past couple of years, I do go to the United Nations when they're doing events that have to do with, you know, women, feminism, population, you know, the issues uh, that very much touch on the life issues and things that will affect family understanding or marriage or, you know, human sexuality. I try to get myself uh, there to the UN headquarters, which is, of course, in New York. Um, but other than that, that's my life. I still work as a as a scientist. And, uh, and at the same time as well, I run this small organizational initiative called Culture of Life Africa. And uh, that's really how my life has, has continued to go up to now. Now, you mentioned the, the, the book Target Africa, uh, Ideological Neocolonialism in the 21st Century is the subtitle, forward by Robert P. George. We've had him on the podcast before. I want to come back to this topic of, of neocolonialism. Uh, our our, leader, our readers, our listeners can find uh, Target Africa at Amazon.com. It's published by Ignatius Press, good good publisher, uh, well-reputed book, and, and uh, encourage them to check that out. We'll come back to that. Uh, I wonder if you could go a little bit deeper into how do you see the introduction or the, the promotion of contraceptives in African culture being a challenge to its historic culture? How, how does that present a challenge? For, for some of us in the, in the United States, U.S., and Canada, uh, contraceptives are almost a way of life. It's, just, it's, just part of, it, it's becoming part of kind of the most recent culture. And, and that might be kind of odd for us to hear. How is that a, that that's an affront to culture? How do you see that as a challenge to the African culture that you are trying to articulate? Right. So a lot of the African traditions and African cultures and customs across the continent uh, see family as strength in numbers. Um, so the African people are about the most phyloprogenitive people on earth. So African women welcome life. And, and of course, as I speak, I do not speak for every single person, but what I am saying sure. is this is what is uh, most widespread. This is what is most common that mm. uh, when, when an African woman uh, becomes pregnant, even if it's a quote-unquote unplanned pregnancy, the baby is always welcome. Children are seen as gifts from God. And this cuts across the religion. So even the Christians, even the Muslims, even those who are neither, right? So those who are still within the traditional uh, religion of the African cultures, there is this value to human life. And of course, by extension, human sexuality from where life, you know, how life is, is, is conceived. That's how the Africans see life. That's how the Africans see human sexuality. Now, for someone like Melinda Gates to come into an African country, to come into even the continent of Africa, she was making this uh, broad proposal uh, to tell people, you know, why don't you take up family planning? Why don't you take up contraception? She was not only saying this, she was pushing the African governments uh, to 
make policies to start putting into 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 effect within their different countries something that has to do with with uh, population control something that has to do with with family planning and that i found that actually quite dangerous because uh yes in in western countries one can say yes people are free and you know no one forces anybody to do anything but that's not necessarily the case in a lot of these african countries if you get it into the head or the mind of some african leader uh, who has dictatorial uh uh, tendencies that this is exactly what your country needs to come out of poverty, which of course has been proven time and time again. That is not the case. Doesn't necessarily follow that a reduction in population will come directly would would lead directly to economic uh, to any kind of economic flourishing or economic thriving. But if you put it into the mind of some some African leader to to uh, use you know that that women's fertility has become a burden to a country's economy. Uh, then you're essentially pushing them in, in so many ways to to get people uh, into forced, you know, we've seen things like forced sterilization, we've seen things where people, women are not given enough information, we've seen cases as well where women, you know, across the different African countries, especially in rural areas where Western organizations, uh, Western projects like this come in, and they start to share contraceptives that have side effects. Then eventually they leave, they leave the village, never to be heard from again. But these women are stuck with IUDs that they will have to carry for years, even if they have side effects. There is nowhere to go. There is no hospital to go to. There is no one to tend to these side effects. So, how does someone who lives in America and who is living, in fact, the the best in within the best possible conditions in America, as a billionaire's wife? right can come into an african village uh without knowing what the background is without even considering the backdrop without considering the culture or the values of the people then you start to push towards them uh, powerful drugs powerful contraceptives powerful chemicals just to reduce their fertility that you know and that 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 then becomes a problem you're trying to uh, make the african woman's fertility the problem you are marking it out as the problem that africa has uh, and that indirectly or even in many cases directly makes the african woman a target for Mm. for people who uh who want to you know who want to change things or who want to bring people out of poverty if the african woman's fertility is a problem there could be a war a complete war waged against the african woman Hmm. i mean so many of the the implications and and i'll i'll you know let's assume the the from the best of intentions right the implications just seem to be Un, un, uncritically accepted or, or unaddressed and and there's this this sense of you're starting to spell out some of the implications that you would see coming and how they would be uh, an affront and a challenge to the the mindset of family that there's a sense of strength in numbers that it's based it's based on a an unproven assumption that that uh, that the poverty would be would be well addressed by a shrinking population and you're you're trying to I hear you trying to tease out some of these uh, implications that might be lying beneath the surface, right? Again, uh, yes. lack of lack of readily available health care uh, if something yep. does go wrong in many in many places where it would go. You, you're starting to push into the answer to the question I want to ask next, but just so that we're we're really I want our lead, our listeners really to to grasp this concept. Uh, you're right. you're really addressing the concept of of what you call neo-colonialism. All right, we can we can have a sense of of colonialism of of uh, one country exerting power over another and attempting to go in and, and occupy it and then exploit it, right? And we think about that yes. that effect historically, 
Can you tell us what, what, I mean, you've given some examples, but maybe flesh out for us a little bit more. What do you mean by neo-colonialism? Right. That is a, a term that even up to now, we, I think we're just trying to unpack it as far as some of these issues are concerned. But the colonialism of uh, 100 years ago, of 80 years ago even, uh, was all about you know politics and geography. It's the United Kingdom or Great Britain as it was at the time coming into Nigeria and taking control of the land, annexing us that we will be part. We became part of their colony. Uh, you know, France did the same thing. Germany for some time did the same thing. Spain, all of some of these Western countries came in and annexed the African countries. What it meant for the Africans on ground at the time, because my parents were were children of the of, of the days of colonization. So my my mom and my dad were born into colonialism. My grandparents were born into colonialism, uh, but at the time, what it meant for them was that we would never determine uh, our, you know, where, where our nation is heading. We would never determine our own destiny in a sense of speaking. We would never uh, make decisions for ourselves as nations. And on the other hand, the colonial masters, and that's, I think, the main difference between colonialism and slavery, the colonial, quote-unquote, colonial masters, so the British people, the, you know, the, the, the people who were leading uh, the African people were saying... Uh, and acting as if this is for your own, you know, we're doing this for your own good. It was a, a paternalism which was being acted out uh, through this kind of uh, twisted relationship. Now that's ended, that all ended, uh, you know, at the beginning of the 1960s. In fact, from 1958, African countries started to gain independence. But then uh, I love to to bring it up before I actually explain what is neocolonialism, because if we understood what happened at the time for the Africans and how they saw it, then perhaps you can see how exactly what is happening now has become neocolonialism. Now today, what is happening is that between the African countries and the the wealthy Western nations, not all of them, but again, some of them, and even in addition to the nations, there are uh, very powerful organizations and very powerful foundations, even private and, and philanthropic uh, foundations, who come to Africa and say, we are here for your good. If you, you see you see where I'm going with this, they say, we are here for your own good, for your own interest. We want to partner with you. We want to join hands with you because you are suffering in poverty and, and all of this. And what can we give you? We can give you aid. So they come into African nations as donors and they become a part of, of African, you know, African leadership, even if not officially. So our we have a president, we have governors, we have, uh, you know, people in our house of houses of representatives and parliaments across the different African con uh, countries but what is ever present in every African country that you step into is the omnipresence of the donor the Western donor. It's how much America gives us you know some African nations depend on donor money and foreign aid in order for them to have a complete national budget and that is quite dangerous now because of this kind of relationship and not just relationship it is a high dependency economic dependency that the african nations have on these western donors that has now put us in a position of complete uh, submission to the donors which is where we were 80 years ago 
whereby uh, these donors, even without them taking up the name uh, colonial masters, they have in many ways become our ideological colonial masters because, of course, as of today, as of 2018, the donors also come in addition with the money, they also come with fully formed uh, ideological plans. They have their own ideologies, they have their own ideas, they have their own ideals, they have their own understanding of the world. And what most of them, as we see now, what most of them are trying to achieve in African countries is not even just to, it's not to raise the African nations out of poverty as they claim they want to. It's really to recreate the African countries into their own image and likeness, uh, especially as the landscape is also changing in the West on so many issues, on, you know, on, on many things, especially things that have to do with human uh, sexuality and morality and family and feminism, all of these things. They come with, with f these fully formed ideas and ideologies and they dump it on us. And because we are receiving aid from them, we are almost obliged to, to do what they say and at least to sit and listen uh, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, and we're controlled by them in, in so many ways. So I believe that without, you know, that's a very long explanation, but I want to believe that you know, just in painting the picture this way, one can see that indeed the African nations have now again been annexed as we were before. But in this in in this time uh, we are being ideologically annexed and ideologically occupied and ideologically colonized by Western entities. Well, it, it gets so complex because uh, the way that, that some of our political leaders and, and media will present it, and not, and not necessarily with a desire to mislead, will often present uh, packages to, to their electorate, will, will present packages that they have developed to, to bring support to nations that are in poverty or in foreign aid, and they will simply describe it as benevolence, right? As as foreign aid. But when you get into the details, what the, what the details reveal is a reflection of an ideology, or as you say, a sense of ideals and ideas about how the way should about how the world should work. And so, what comes across on the surface is is very good, very good intents, and 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 very. Uh, benevolent actions, but but into the details, it can become something that has heavy implications. That that is is reforming, not simply aiding, not simply helping, but is reforming cultures yeah. where this help yeah. is going. Absolutely. I mean, without a doubt, we are seeing that, and that's exactly what led me even to write the book Target Africa. That I was just following the trails and just following, you know like the, the breadcrumbs, if you like, uh, things that I was seeing in documents in some of the UN resolutions, some of the things that happened between, uh, say, for example, uh, an American administration and an African country, you know, within bilateral relationships. I was reading through the text and just finding out and seeing a bigger picture. Oh, my goodness. They're not just trying to help us. They're not just being nice partners. They're not just trying to uh, help our children go to school. They are trying to get our children to go to school and learn a new type of sex 
Ed uh, that is called the Comprehensive Sexuality Education, for example. And when you go through it, these are things that have been written in New York and they are bringing it to children in Nairobi mm. and they're trying to get children to step away from the heritage that they would have got from their parents in, in terms of understanding, you know, all the things that our parents taught us, you know, things that your parents have taught you that marriage is beautiful and good, that motherhood is beautiful and good. Somebody writes a new, uh, uh, you know, a, a new set of ideals and ideas, writes it up in New York, and then they bring it to an African capital uh, or, you know, not just New York, and this is not just to pick on New York, but London or, or Paris or anywhere. They write it up, they write it there, and then they bring it to an African city or an African state or an African region and try to spread these ideas through the schools and the schools are open to them in Africa, by the way, because they are donating millions of dollars. So why wouldn't we open the door for somebody to come in, you know, some Western organization to come in and teach our children how to use condoms. Uh, but these are things that the African people will find objectionable and the African parents will find quite offensive uh, to know that their parental rights are being completely uh, trampled by people coming from the West simply because they are giving so much money to, to the government. Joining us today is Obianuju Ikioke. Uh, she is the founder and president of Culture of Life Africa, uh, cultureoflifeafrica.com. Uh, Uju, one of the things that uh, I find fascinating about your story is your life in science. And I'm wondering if we could kind of turn the conversation just a little bit. And let me ask you, so you have uh, a bachelor's degree in microbiology from the University of uh, Nigeria. You have a degree in um, uh, biomedical science from the University of East London. And now you're working uh, as a biomedical scientist in hematology in the, in the yes. UK. So hev yes. heavily educated in the sciences, uh, professional life, a vocation in the sciences. How does how does your life in the science in the sciences inform your pro life uh, convictions? Right. Okay, that's perfect. Because <laughs> I, I love you know I love science, and that's 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 my background. So if we have come to understand, and even in just in studies, to know that. It, that the the child in the womb, the baby growing in the womb of the mother, is not just as as we would understand it. Yeah, somebody is expecting. Yeah, it's a baby. We have now very easy, and even just without even being a scientist, we know with things like the four D scans, uh, we know three uh, D ultrasounds. Even people just who get their basic routine ultrasounds, uh, you know, uh, in pregnancy we can't deny life. We cannot deny the human life. Even as a scientist working in the medical field, at this time, I do certain blood tests on mother's blood in order to find out something about the baby. And that's because uh, we know it's a human life. And that's because the doctors are, tr are working hard trying to, uh, to keep this baby strong, to keep this baby healthy, treating the baby as a full patient. We work in blood transfusion, in, in, in IUTs, intrauterine transfusions, for example, where uh, we are having to issue blood for women to, to be transfused during pregnancy 
for their babies to get blood, right? So this is a treatment not just for mothers, but but for babies. We hear of things like uh, uh, the surgeries that that doctors do on babies even before they are born. There is no way to deny this. And and the more that I've come to study in science, the more appreciation I've had, the more understanding I've had that that a child in the womb has its own DNA, which we cannot deny. I run blood tests. I can find out that a baby's blood group is completely different than the mother's. So now I come to the West uh, where people know this, you know, you have the best of medical advancements. Uh, and then in the same country where there are all these amazing medical advancements, in the same place, you still hear people saying things like, it's my body, my choice. Uh, it's not a baby in the womb, but until the baby until it's born, right? So it's it's a woman's body. So you don't have a right to say. But then I come into my lab in the same country and I run a test and I'm telling a doctor, this baby is this blood type and the mother is this other blood type, completely different. We know and speak about a baby in the womb in two different ways, depending on whether this baby is wanted or not. As a scientist, I think we should be consistent and we should have it all reconciled that if a child in the womb can be taken as a, as a real patient in a hospital and treated as such, then there is no way on earth I will ever accept that that child can be killed only dependent on if the mother wants the baby or not. Mm. I cannot get my mind around it. So I choose to be consistent uh, and I choose to serve within the medical field uh, with, you know, inconsistency that I would serve and, and help doctors to find out what is going on, even with a child in the womb. And when it comes to time to speak up uh, where this same baby or these same babies can be, can be, you know, their lives can be terminated, their lives can be ended, but, you know, in the hospital or in a clinic or in an abortion facility, wherever, I would speak up against that because, you know, I cannot, I cannot do two different things and pretend that they're two different things or they're two different kinds of entities when we know, even by science, that it's the same baby we're talking about. Well, Uju, thank you so much for taking the time and using your voice to help educate us and me uh, to share your perspective with us. I, I want to ask just kind of one final question. Uh, so our listeners are often pastors, people invested and involved in their local churches. They are active in, in trying to bring social justice and to be on, on behalf of those who are without and in need uh, and in need of relationship or finances or or emotional support, whatever else, in their in their different communities. From your perspective, and you're, and you're coming at this from a different perspective from us, and, and we want to learn from you, what what would you say to pastors or or active church members here in the U.S. and in Canada, where our list, most of our listeners are? What would you say to us how we can be uh, we can be effective uh, agents for justice uh, in the world in the world? Uh, not just our own communities. Hopefully, they, they're getting a sense of that. But that we can be active agents for justice in the world. From your perspective, how can we do that? Please speak up. Uh, in the you know in a world where the truth has now become a choice, you know, it's like we people people wouldn't serve the truth, but they would serve an ideology. Please speak up for truth. Please speak up for true human human rights, uh, that within the West, we, sp we speak so much about human rights. But how do we speak about human rights when we can't even agree 
on what is human or who is human, right? So whose rights is it? And so people as 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 ministers, uh, you know, within the church, ministers serving the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would beg you uh, to please speak up in such a way that that one would see that you were strengthened by the gospel, mm. that the gospel you share, mm. you share it in in love, yes, but also share it in truth. We need the both of them. Yes. And what is going on now, at least with the African people? What is going on on you know on the international stage? Please tell people about it because when I talk about uh, this kind of ideological neocolonialism, sometimes people are surprised because they don't know what is going on. As you say, on the surface, it all looks good. And it's not that people don't need aid, but when giving aid or help to the African people, let it not be uh, with strings attached. And if you, you know, if you are speaking up from a pulpit, in, you know, implore those who are in who are in power, those who are in government. The the you know, if you if you're from the United States, speak out from the pulpit and and ask the state to be careful when they give aid to uh, poorer countries in the way they make demands on them. So it's a good thing uh, and laudable that that they give aid and they are helping with African schools and African hospitals. Those are all amazing projects. You know, water for communities where there is no water. But please, enough of the comprehensive sexuality education. Enough of the pressure going uh, going towards these countries to legalize abortion. Enough of the pressure going towards these countries to uh, embrace feminism in the way feminism has been defined in the West. So that's what I'm, I would be uh, begging from, from your listeners, that they bring us the gospel with, as truth with love. Or as love with truth, hmm. both of them hand in hand. Joining us today has been Obianuju Ikioke. She is uh, has written the book Target Africa: Ideological Neocolonialism in the 21st Century. You can find that on Amazon.com. You can find more about uh, Uju as she goes by at her website cultureoflifeafrica.com. Cultureoflifeafrica.com. Thank you so much, Uju, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very grateful and I've uh, quite enjoyed myself speaking with you today. Wonderful. And we hope that you've enjoyed yourselves as well, listeners, and that you will uh, avail yourself of this podcast and, and other resources that are available through the Wesley Seminary podcast. Thanks so much for joining in and have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.